Hello, I'm Scott Winstead, president of FMI Consulting. I'm really excited to share my conversation with Mark Horgan with you. Mark is the CEO of Horgan Group, a fully integrated construction and development firm based in the Mid-Atlantic region. To name just a few of the firm's accolades, Horgan was named ENR's Contractor of the Year for the Mid-Atlantic region in 2021. They received ABC National's Pinnacle Award for Safety in 2022 and are regularly recognized as a great place to work by Fortune Magazine as well as other sources. In our conversation, we get into what it means to play the long game and how Mark thinks about building an enduring organization beyond the current generation. We touch on a wide range of topics, but zero in on succession and how to successfully navigate your kids entering the business. Well, good afternoon, Mark. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Scott. It's a real pleasure to be with you today and talking about items that affect both of us in our business. Well, very excited to have you. It's always great to catch up. It's been a little bit too long. Maybe as a place to start, Mark, if you wouldn't mind, just give us a quick thumbnail of Horrigan today and sort of how the business is set up. When I started the firm in 93, Scott, we were, I would say, a fairly traditional construction management firm doing a lot of work for owners under a CM at risk model, very much focused on the relationship negotiated side of the business. And I would say that core foundation really has remained all the way through the organization. We have grown, we have added elements to the business. So today where we sit is what we like to call a, a fully integrated model where we can offer owners a whole continuum of services from consulting, master planning, and not so much that we will do the master planning, but kind of manage that process, oversee the design components and get very heavily involved in that. And then in addition to constructing the buildings, we may or may not then develop the building for them as well. We have a development arm now. And then ultimately what we hope to do is grow that into capacity to operate and maintain those buildings for them over the long haul. And my thought in looking at that is we have such great relationships with owners and we handle a certain aspect of the build continuum for them. And we're often asked to get involved in other aspects of what they do. Um, so that we can assist them in that way. So why not offer the full complement and menu of services that an owner might need as they contemplate anything as it relates to their real estate or their construction needs? And if we are truly that trusted advisor and all energy is focused on the client, then we should offer all those services and let them pick and choose where we can best assist them. So to use a, an example or a cliche from healthcare, it sounds like it's a treat the whole patient type of a model where it's, you know, look at the the client as an individual and holistically figure out what makes the most sense, what would best serve their needs, and then give them those opportunities to, as you said, handpick what makes the most sense for them. Yeah, it is. It's very much that, Scott, trying to remember it's never about us. It's always about the client and what are their needs and how do we best serve them? And we have some clients that literally will use all of our services and we'll have some that will pick one or two that we might provide. And any answer is okay. It's just what is it that we can do to be the easy button for them as they pursue anything as it relates to real estate or construction. You know, the other thing you and I have talked about in the past is we try very hard not to confuse volume with success in this business. Too many people measure by the top line. And for us, the success is always about the relationship and how we can advance the cause of our clients and, and what their needs are. Obviously, you need a certain amount of volume and profitability in order to make it all worthwhile, but it can't and shouldn't be the only driving force in that decision. Absolutely. 
If I think back to when we first met, I think it was back in 2006, if I recall, and sitting down with you at the beginning of a couple of days together to spend some time with your folks to get to know the organization a little bit better. And I think you said what you just said now, back then, uh, <laughs> very similar in terms of just, it's about the client, it's about them, it's about our partners in the market, sub-consultants, design partners, et cetera. It's not about us. And we're here to solve their issues and their problems. And I thought to myself, okay, well, I've heard this before. Let me just talk to your folks and see if it if it checks out and see if it's uh, if I hear the same thing. And I think I came back to you three days later and said, you know, it's the first time I've done this where it's pretty unanimous across the board where it speaks to kind of the the philosophy or the ethos of the of the firm in terms of how you how you all operate and how you treat partners and and clients. You know, Scott, I had the benefit of great mentors growing up. You know, my dad, my grandfather. I'd even say. And not in the traditional sense, but my mom were all people who really helped ground me in the right and wrong of what you do in the integrity side of things and really helping me realize there are transactions or there's things that happen that are fairly tactical, but it really is about the humans that are involved and how you make them feel and, and what you do to help them, especially when no one's looking. And if you do that, you really do build enduring relationships. And those enduring relationships are great when times are good. They're especially great when times are bad, because I do find we were able to keep our people busy during some of those downturns that we talked about earlier that have come along. When you have high trust with your clients, they will often find ways to keep you busy sometimes when the rest of the marketplace may or may not be. You mentioned the word enduring, and I want to come back to that in a second. But as you as you talk about it, I um, read this, I can't remember where, I'd give attribution if I can recall, but uh, a couple of weeks ago, but it talked about the the four permutations of a relationship. Mm. There's win-win, there's win-lose, there's lose-win, and there's win-win. And only one of those survives over time. We have this whole concept of enduring. And so as you think about that in the context of building an enduring organization, would love to kind of hear your perspective on what that means to you. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing to think about. It's something I think about regularly. As you grow a business, when you start, you're wearing all the hats. And when you're wearing all those hats, that's great. But as you begin to grow your business and begin to entrust other people with certain aspects of your business, you've got to make sure that they are looking at it or hopefully are looking at it the same way that you would or very, very close to what you're doing. So the idea of being clear in what the culture of the organization is and what is the decision framework that you need to use to me are the important things where we spend time. And as we've gotten much bigger, really important that we spend time talking about what does a leader look like here at Horrigan? What are those competencies that they need to have? What are the ways that you treat others in the marketplace? And my hope is that whether it's Mark Horgan or one of my senior leaders, or whether it's one of my carpenters working on a job or anywhere in between, they get to deal with the same basic human. And one of the ways that we've done that is to really drive what our mission is and what our core values are and, and really get focused around the long-term vision of the organization. If we can do that, then I believe you have a chance to create something that is enduring. And so for us, as we've backed up and tried to codify that and what I feel like is how I make my daily decisions. Well, how do you how do you put that in writing? And it's not unlike when we worked on some of our long-term vision statements, Scott, with you and FMI. Some of the hardest writing you have to do is to get down to a very few short words what it is that you're all about. 
for us, when we talk about our long-term vision, we have a healthy tension in it. It's to be our client's first and best choice for integrated building solutions that enhance communities and advance our world. And we put all that in there. So it's not the easiest thing to roll off your tongue, but it tries to capture, we need to be the best at what we do, but we need to be the best in the client's eyes. So we are their clear first choice. We can't do what's simply best for us. It's got to be best for them as well. But it needs to be with that idea that we enhance our communities and we make the world a little bit better than we found it. I truly believe if we can do that, then we will build an enduring organization. As you think about first and best, and there's a lot of firms out there that, as you know, have purpose statements, values, vision, sure. they, all, they all sound really good and inspiring. And then there's game day, right? And the gun goes off Monday morning and construction starts to happen and how you bring that to life. I'm curious, as you've rewinded 2006, or even when you started the business to today, as you guys have grown and scaled and become much more multifaceted in your offerings, how have you managed to, to pull that thread consistently and make it not just words on paper? It's important to do a couple things, I believe. It's great to have that long-term vision. But how we show up every day are on those core values of, and we try and hire by those core values and what we're looking for. And for us, we have seven words that are our core values that I think our people can understand very clearly. If we hire for those people, if we're clear about who we are, we're clear about where we're going and how we do work, that's the first step. The next step is then to make sure that our behavior rewards and mimics those words. So when it comes down to, performance management, when it comes down to short-term incentive goals, when it comes down to long-term incentive goals. And now as we are entering the world of having new shareholders in the organization, who we pick, how we reward people, and what we say is a good performer here at Oregon, if it doesn't match those words, then it doesn't connect. And so our job is to make sure that those words do connect and that our behaviors follow that. And when people have a question about a salary increase or a bonus or a promotion or a long-term incentive comp, we can come back to them with a pretty clear scorecard on where they have excelled, where they have room for improvement. If there is room for improvement, what we'd like to see out of them in order for them to continue to earn the highest salary compensation that they can get or even beyond that, then I think it's important that we do that. And obviously, your leadership team needs to walk it every single day. Yeah, the authenticity of the words matters, right? Because it, people don't, they don't really hear what you say, they hear what you do, to use a, a cliche. Yeah, there's no rocket science in that, but it is, it is that basic blocking and tackling of doing the right thing and making sure people know why you're making those decisions. And we have placed a pretty big premium on communicating that and making sure people know why we are making the decisions that we make. I do think. I look for things that are the litmus test or the report cards for us. I do look at what they say in the Great Place to Work survey. I will tell you, we've made our people, like most good companies, they are the greatest assets. And we have a dedicated group that we put in place in 2016. That's a people strategies group. And all they do is focus on recruiting the right people, onboarding them the right way, building career paths, building training programs. and setting them on their path to make sure that we are all aligned in what we are doing. I think that's vitally important. And I think for today's new workers coming into the, into the workforce, 
it's an absolute must. There's a high need for that feedback on a regular basis. And sometimes you're right, game day gets you busy with what you have to do to get a job done. It can't be an either or. It has to be a yes and in those situations. Absolutely. And to your point, I think it's table stakes at this point. If candidates don't see the authenticity behind the words or the content. It falls flat. It really does. Yeah, I agree with you. Kind of going back to this enduring organization concept, I think it was Jim Collins that talked about the duality of the statement. It's about purpose and values, as well as strategy and structure. And the the duality comes in, you know, when you think about your purpose and values, and ideally those don't change over time. They're evergreen. What you say you are is who you are and, and how you operate. And then your strategy should change and it should renew and should regenerate over time based on what's happening in the market where things are going, what's driving demand. I'm curious as as you all are in the process of undergoing another round of strategic planning, how do you think about strategy and where to place your bets as an organization in the context of building for the long haul and building this enduring organization? It is, I think, probably the most challenging thing we're doing these days is trying to figure out, you know, where the puck's going and, and how to skate and get there ahead of it. It's a very dynamic workforce right now. It's a dynamic marketplace big world events, big health events have really changed the marketplace in very, very significant ways. And I think we are still living through where all this is going to pan out. What I think remains constant underneath all of that, and and whether the changes are big or small in the marketplace, that's always happening. If we are doing the right things by staying in the forefront on our technology, if we are listening to our clients and, and what their needs are and where they are going, if we look at the risk side of the business, which is another huge challenge in our industry, and be smart and creative and fair about how you deal with some of those things, if you build great products, whatever product it is that you're building, whether it is an office building that historically has been perhaps a bread and butter to something that might be advanced manufacturing or life science in the future, you've got to have the subject matter experts there that know what they're doing so that you are the best in class in terms of what you are delivering. We'll always have to be looking three, five, 10, 15 years out and figure out where we, where we think the puck is going, but making sure we have the underlying factors right, that we have the right people. And I would say who, who are curious, who are creative, and who know how to listen. And I think those, those fundamentals have to be there if you're gonna put the right game plan in place. Just to continue to thread for a moment and then we can, we can move on, but in the context of enduring organizations, I'd, I'd love your perspective, Mark, on how that shapes your views around succession planning. And just big picture, just as you think about succession. As you know, you've helped me on this journey of, of ownership transfer and succession planning. I tried to run two parallel paths. At the time I started thinking about it, it's just been a little while now. I had two sons, Mark and Matthew, who appeared to have some interest in their early teens of, of maybe doing something along these lines. And while that's a wonderful thing, and I and if it worked out, I, was, I would be excited if it had worked out. I also know that they needed to know that they had the opportunity to pursue their passions, not mine. And so I wanted to make sure they never felt an obligation to do that. At the same time, I had some really wonderful, talented, and still do, up-and-coming future leaders in our organization. And what I did for several years was to try and run those two paths and not preclude either option from being where we ended up. And probably in no surprise, we end up now where we are in a hybrid situation where 
we will have family members who I believe will continue on and become shareholders, and they are shareholders now, will become larger shareholders in the future, along with really talented people who work for us that are not family members, but are vital to our success and have proven over time to have all the attributes we look for in in a future leader and someone who will represent the brand in a great way. And so my desire has always been to transfer this organization to the next generation of leaders and maintain this locally owned multi-generational company and do that in a seamless way. And so the planning and effort that it takes to do that is important, but I don't think there's anything more important that I can spend my time on than making sure the organization can move forward to the next generation of leaders of both family and non-family members. If, with your permission, share a little bit of a story from back back when. I can't remember when it was or the year, but I remember you at one point asking me if I'd be willing to sit down with both Mark and Matthew when they were in high school, if, mm-hmm. I, if memory serves. Yes, they were. I think Mark Jr. might have been a senior or junior in high school and Matthew may be a freshman. The purpose was for me to educate them to a degree on what it means to have the same last name as the guy that owns the joint. And if they were to work in the business over summer, on job sites and whatnot, to just remember that superintendents, foremen, crew members have long memories. And they remember if you're the kid that's going to show up late, leave early, not take it seriously. You talked earlier about curiosity that aren't curious, that don't ask questions, that are there punching a clock, waiting to go do something really important with their free time. Or are they going to remember somebody who asks lots of questions, who's eager to learn, who's first to show up and last to leave? And And I remember, so I sat down and from our experience, we work with a lot of leaders that are family businesses. In 23 years, that's the first time and only time somebody's asked me to do that, to sit down with (laughs) kids that weren't in the business yet. And I just remember being really impressed with one, how they showed up. They, They asked me a lot of questions, took a lot of notes, were genuinely curious about what they needed to be thinking about, even at that point, as they were working on working on projects. And so as I think about how this might be of value to others that are out there that are thinking about succession and should they consider family. I think it's a really interesting approach to just know what it means to have the the advantages as well as whatever stigma may be associated with coming into a family business and how you will be perceived. Yeah, well, you're remembering the story exactly right. And, and Matthew and Mark came back after that, uh, that conversation. So they talked to this really smart guy who talked to him about a lot of things they didn't understand. But they asked a lot of questions. No, I do think it's important for the next generation of leader to understand, especially if they have your same name, to come into a business as the next generation. There are both expectations of them and there are also probably some challenges that they will face and they need to understand those and know how to deal with them. It's also, to me, important that they understood the business before they made career choice. And I think the dynamic of a family business is even more challenging because if all of a sudden at some point you've figured out it's not what you want to do, how hard is that to walk into a parent, brother or sister, whatever else is in the business and say, I don't think I want to do this anymore. So I felt it was important to me that they had the opportunity to pursue something else, that there was an easy exit ramp as they were contemplating this process is this something they really did want to do? Or was it just a young teenager thinking they thought they wanted to do it because their dad did it? So in those first couple of summers in high school, they worked for us in the field. That's when you met them. And 
they mucked out footings and they worked as carpenters and they did laborers and they did all the things that you needed to do to understand the business. But as they progressed, they started doing more and more and working with our better superintendents and some of our really talented field people, many of whom took an interest in helping to develop them. So all of a sudden they felt this connection that there's, this is not a job. This is a group of people that care about what we do how we do it, how we serve our clients, how we meet deadlines and those other things. So it instilled in them early on, I think part of that work ethic that you want them to have. When they got to college and they were in building construction programs, each of their summers in college, I had them work for a mechanical sub, an electrical sub, an owner, and an architect, because I wanted them to see our business from all sides and how we were showing up as a company, as a general contractor, as a trade partner to our subcontractors or a design partner with our design firms, and how could we do that better? And so I I feel like those experiences for them were very formative in helping them see the business and understand it before they made life choices. And at graduation, they both said that they still wanted to do that. So they they did have the time to see it, understand it, taste it a little bit. And the last thing that I asked them to do is go work someplace else for three years. And so Mark, you know, we're here in Richmond, Virginia. Mark went out to Salt Lake City, Utah, and worked for a company in our peer group. And Matthew went to Chicago two years later and worked for a developer up there. And I think that does a number of things. It helps them grow and mature someplace where their their name doesn't matter. Um, they need to figure life out a little bit and solve some of the challenges and be pretty self-sufficient. But probably the most important thing is they come back to the business with skills and knowledge and perspective and they're not in the business because they've got the right last name they're in the business because they want to be there and they have something to offer and we can immediately put them to work i think it helps them not come in as the boss's or founder's son but more somebody who has skills and attributes that can help the business and help move forward and show a real passion and desire for the business and and for the brand and the name and the things we're trying to do to the point where others in the organization see them as value adds. You know, they've got their own street cred. They've earned it. They've gone somewhere and done something where their name didn't matter. And I know, and I think both those situations, you almost lost both of them to those two companies' success and plans. So somehow <laughs> yeah. you managed to get them back. So that's... Yeah, it kept the hook in them for a little while. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Well, I love it. It's a great story. And I think a good, a good uh, mental model for folks to think about. If you were to start the process over again, I'm curious, Mark, what would you do? What would you do the same way? And what would you do differently, if anything? You know, you're going to probably laugh at this, Scott, because I don't remember when it was that I went to my first ownership transition and successing planning seminar that you guys held, but it was long before the kids were really serious about it. And I was struck by a story that was told in that seminar about someone who waited very, very long to to start this process. And in turn, never quite gave the credit to some of the people in their organization or even to a family member thinking they never quite measured up. And it was important for me to say I would never be that type of person as I went through this planning process. I would say as early as I started, Scott, I would probably start sooner. And it seems strange as you're growing a business and and expanding and adding people to whatever, and you're in the thick of it to stop and say, how will I transition this at some point? But I would say the earlier you have a thought, if that's an interest to transition your business to family members and or your current leadership team, it's a long process. And it is one that takes a lot of time, energy, and purpose. 
have time to see how people develop, put them in different roles. When do they quite reach their peak performance and can they keep growing? Can they keep doing the things you need to do? And being an owner of a business, I think requires to the best degree that you can, the highest level of IQ and EQ in order to do the business strategy things that you talk about and the execution of the work that we perform. But how is it that you are seeing the potential in people? What are the seats that you need to fill on the bus for another Jim Collins kind of reference? And you know, how do you put the right people in the right place? And do they all work out? Those are things that it really does take quite a bit of time, but they need to know early on that they are on that track. And so if I had to do anything, I don't know, I do it a lot differently. I might just start a little sooner. Well, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think just purely from a math standpoint, as we've talked about, I mean, it tends to take eight to 10 years for shares to transition from one generation to another, just through traditional buyout methodologies. And that's the, that's the math side. That's right. Hard parts, the people side, you know, and that can go faster, but can also take longer depending on the, the folks that you're working with. Well, and I think it's eight to 10 years, Scott, in a fairly stable environment. Throw an economic downturn, <laughs> throw COVID, throw some other things in there. It changes the math. And those are the things that you can't control. Those are the things that you have to learn to roll with and, and maybe slow play or change the methodology in which you're transferring shares and what, what it is that you're doing. But all that takes time. And then, you know, the other thing that for most of us, the succession planning piece and the the mechanisms of how you do that from a financial perspective really great people around you on your team as consultants to help you think through what that looks like and what are the options available to you. That too takes time to kind of get your head around how you want to transfer your particular organization. There's a million models out there, as you know, and one of the great benefits I think of our peer group is having the opportunity to talk with the CEOs of firms that have been through this two or three times or doing it on an ongoing basis, depending upon how they're structured. You know, for us, it was the first time. And so there's a there's a lot to learn while you're flying the plane at 200 miles an hour. The mentor of mine that, that you spent some time with is famous for talking about life is about options. He or she who has the most wins. That's right. And succession is absolutely all about options to give yourself that amount of time. But you've also got to make some good bets, some good bets on good people. Because if you're limited to one or two options and somebody decides life circumstance or whatever, to to move on and do something different, you're starting the process all over again. So yeah. as you talked about running the parallel path, doing it intentionally over a long period of time, you cultivate those options. And I mean, not that you're going anywhere anytime soon, but you've got this stable of folks that could take up the mantle and do some pretty special things for the organization over the long term. Absolutely. I will tell you the other thing that for me, I have learned having multiple paths inside your organization whether they are affiliate companies that do self-perform work or this consulting thing we talk about or other things that we are doing that help us drive our main business, the more leadership positions you can create for people at different scale allows you to put people in positions and move them around over time. So there's a degree of three-dimensional chess that you're playing in moving the pieces around the board in order to give them time in the saddle, um, challenges to deal with, people issues to confront and see how they perform. And then before you move them to the next opportunity, but you've always got to be thinking who's going to backfill that position and, and who are you grooming? So 
the people management side of the business, when you start really running the business, not running projects, there's a lot of time and energy that needs to be spent, I think, to try and do that the best way possible. Could agree more. And you, you mentioned something there that I think is probably worth repeating. And in the spirit of this whole concept of enduring organizations, the the folks that we've seen perform best over the years are those that view the business as a business, as mm-hmm. a going concern. It's going to be here next year, five years, 10 years out versus a collection of projects, because the mm-hmm. mindset's very, very different depending on which of those two paths you pick. And to your point about the three-dimensional chess, that makes a lot of sense. That is a shift that you have to make in I remember us having this conversation years ago and you need to set your business plan in place and you don't wait until the project is either here or not here before you have your business plan. It needs to be there and the moves that you need to make are moves that need to be happening, whether or not any particular project comes along or not. So how do you make sure you've got all the things in your in your hand to be able to play? That becomes very different. That's great. Well, you may have mentioned this or you may have answered this already, but I'll ask I'll ask anyway, if if you were to offer any advice to other leaders who are in similar situations that are thinking about just taking a long view or I guess more specifically about succession planning, you know, what what advice would you offer? I think for me, Scott, the thing that changed and that what I would encourage others to consider is up until probably 2010, 12, we were doing a rolling kind of three-year strategic plan on where are we, what do we need, where are we going, what do we need, and trying to look at the business that way. When we sat down shortly after that period and tried to do a 10, 20, and 30-year plan, that's when you really start to bring many of these issues to the forefront. And so taking that much longer view, it won't be perfect, it won't be right, But when you start doing that and you start looking at your 30, 35, 40, 45 year old emerging leaders and you at whatever age you are, you start looking out 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years, it's clear transition needs to take place. So you better get focused on that because it does take a while to do it. So I think that that to me was the big shift when we started looking through a much longer lens than kind of the normal planning cycle. That helped us greatly and all of a sudden take a look at who do we want to put in different roles and positions and how are we going to be very purposeful about moving through this process on multiple fronts. There's that side and then there's the financial side that goes with it and the legal side and all the other things that need to happen. It affects your compensation strategy and your structure. It just all of a sudden the ripple effect through your entire organization is very real. And so it doesn't happen because you say you want to do it. There's a a fair amount of work and planning that needs to take place. And so the sooner you can begin to bring all that into focus, the better. Well, Mark, maybe the the last question I'd like to ask you is, if you could go back in time, I'd love to know what's the most impactful piece of advice you go back and give your 25-year-old self. When you think about how you build an enduring company, the relationship piece, it starts with those below you, those beside you, and those in front of you or on top of you. And making sure that you are seeing things through that lens of all of those people and whatever solution you're bringing to the table, whatever service you provide, that it is something that encompasses all of that. And so that old win-win-win strategy approach to me is one I think is vitally important. I think that's what makes things enduring and making sure that you are looking at it through each of those lenses, that you're creating the opportunities for the people below you, that the vision that you're creating is one that they can buy into. The integrity upon which you execute those things, that matters greatly. 
and it matters greatly to the people you're growing alongside of you to grow your business. But I also think those who are hiring you need to see all of those characteristics in your firm. If you have those things in place, then I do believe you now have the framework upon which you can you can really make something magnificent happen. Mark, that's probably a great place to to land the plane. Again, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this. It's always great to catch up and look forward to continuing to partner with you guys. Well, Scott, thank you. I appreciate the uh, professional and personal friendship and guidance that you provided for many years and I look forward to it continuing as well. As always, thank you for listening. This episode wraps up a fun and personally rewarding first year for Built-In. We're excited to share with you what we have in store for 2024 as we plan to build on this year's foundation by bringing you more insights from ministry leaders as well as from our own subject matter experts. And lastly, please remember to like or subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thank you. 